Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a controversial Mississippi abortion law is in front of the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans. We'll hear from the attorney arguing against the state. And after a Mississippi story core, hear from one expert who says constantly falling down is not a natural part of old age and is actually very dangerous. And find out what researchers are saying about hemp in Mississippi and why it might not be the crop of the future. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is reviewing arguments for and against a Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The state passed the law in 2018. Mississippi's only abortion clinic immediately sued to block the law from taking effect. Hillary Schneller Schneller is an attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights and says the law is unconstitutional. She spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier. So today the Fifth Circuit heard argument on the state 15-week abortion ban, which under nearly decade, nearly five decades Supreme Court precedent is clearly unconstitutional as a ban on abortion before viability. And what is your argument for that not to go into effect? Our argument is that as a ban on abortion well before viability, the 15-week ban flies in the face of nearly five decades of clear Supreme Court precedent saying that before viability, it is for the woman and not the state to make decisions about her pregnancy. Can you explain what viability is? Sure. Viability is the point in a pregnancy when the fetus has a reasonable likelihood of sustained survival independent from the woman, which, as the medical evidence in our case established, is around 23 to 24 weeks at the earliest. Did you present the argument? I did, yeah. How do you think it was received, or can you even tell? So it's hard to speculate about about that. You know, I, I think this case is so straightforward that all the Fifth Circuit needs to do, just like the district court did, is apply 50 years of Supreme Court precedent saying that a state cannot ban abortion before viability, 
which they have tried to do with this 15-week ban. Did you have to answer questions? Yes, the judges did have some questions. What were their concerns? So one of the issues the state has argued is that it should have gotten to present evidence about the reasons the state is allowed to ban abortion before viability. And one of the judges today had questions about that. And our response is that the district court does not need to listen to the reasons that the state has for banning abortion before viability because there can be no reason under decades of Supreme Court law to ban abortion before viability. How long does it take to get a response or what is the process that the court will go through? So the court can issue a decision at any time. It can take a few weeks or a few months. Um, so it's a little hard to predict, but they will you know, meet after this argument and and issue an opinion at, at some later date. How are you feeling about your presentation? We're quite confident, given that the law and the facts are on our side here. Mississippi has tried to ban abortion at 15 weeks and at six weeks over the last two years, and both are equally unconstitutional under decades of Supreme Court law. And right now, what is the status of the six-week uh, ban, although it, arguably it may not be six weeks. It's when the heartbeat is detected. So the state has, Mississippi has passed a ban on abortion based on the detection of cardiac activity, which is as early as six weeks, which is why we have described that as a six-week ban. That law has been blocked preliminarily by a district court, and Mississippi has appealed that decision the Fifth Circuit will likely hear argument on that in the next few months as well. Any idea why they didn't combine the two? Could they have done I, that? They could have. I I don't really know. I think that's really up to the court's discretion. And also, Louisiana has passed a similar 15-week ban. So the decision of the court, would, would that affect that case? The decision of the Fifth Circuit in this case could affect the 15-week ban in Louisiana as well, another state where it is nearly impossible to access abortion already, given all of the restrictions that the the state has passed over the years. And we are seeing this happening around the country where certain states, a number of states and southern states are trying to reduce access. Yes, Mississippi is one of nine states that have passed to bans on abortion just this year, and that is on top of all of the restrictions many of those same states have passed over the last few years, making abortion extremely difficult, if not impossible, for for many people, primarily low-income people and people of color, to access. Attorney Hillary Schnaller, we just thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on this issue. Absolutely. Thank you for covering it. Arguing on behalf of the state were lawyers from the Mississippi Attorney General's office. Attorneys for the state usually don't talk to the media during the course of a case. In a statement, the AG's office says, quote, the state's interest in protecting unborn life justifies the restriction after 15 weeks. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals could rule any time in the coming months. Coming up, hear from one expert who says constantly falling down is not a natural part of old age and is actually very dangerous. That's after a Mississippi StoryCorps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Clementine Cooper grew up on a farm in the Mississippi Delta near the small town of Leland. She was part of a sharecropping family. On this visit to the StoryCorps mobile booth in Jackson, 
Cooper talks about what that childhood was like and what her family did to get by. The sharecropping experience right outside of Leland, the sharecropping farm, had a shanty shack on it, what you see in, in movies and whatnot and in, in books. Everybody primarily knows the shanty shack is like one huge room, uh, wood-burning heater at that time and things of that nature. He worked very hard to chop the cotton and and to pick the cotton and to harvest the cotton and all of that. We stayed at my, my grandmother's house in Leland, in the city, when we first got there. In those days, the children were allowed to sit among the elders sometimes, mostly in the evening time, and these were the storytelling times. My favorite story that my mother would tell us was about the 1927 flood when the levee broke in Greenville, Mississippi, and flooded the whole area, the Delta area there. She talked about the winds and rains and how they mounted up, and and after the levee broke, she talked about the bodies of animal and human bodies that flowed and floated down these floodwaters that even passed by their house and how they were taken to some Indian mounds because that was high land. It would just be so wonderful to hear that story, but it kind of make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, and you you could see it, you could visualize what Mother was telling you in that and consequently, in that, it made her afraid of storms mm-hmm. um, as a young child. She was seven years old when the 27th flood occurred. The Delta h- held very wonderful memories. The sharecropping experience was not so good. But out of those experiences of the sharecropping, we had family gatherings and we would go to town, to my grandmother's house on Friday, stay Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, walk to town. Leland was a very small town. And we would walk to town with mom and daddy and all the relatives. And you could hear the juke joint music playing, and you could smell the fish frying and the chicken, and everybody was having big fun. It was a time of closeness with most people because everybody had the same sort of economic background. There was a lot of poverty, but it was a lot of joy and spirit of giving during those times because whatever family had, they shared with each other. When they had hog killing time, when they had harvesting time of the vegetables and whatnot. And I remember sitting on my grandmother great-grandmother's porch because my grandmother, great-grandmother, great-aunt, all of them lived together, families lived together at that time and took care of the elders as well as the elders, giving them wise counsel and living unto death with their family members. But I remember sitting on the porch and we would have bushels of peas to shale and bushels of corn to shuck. The ladies would be in the kitchen canning all of the wonderful preserves and vegetables and soup stocks and things last during the winter, so they were stocking up for the winter. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash car tag. We'll see you on the road.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. One in four adults age 65 and older will fall every year. In fact, falls are the leading cause of fatal and non-fatal injuries for older Americans, according to the National Council on Aging. 20% of those who do fall will have a fractured hip, broken bones, and head injuries. Kathleen Cameron with the National Council on Aging says many older adults never recover from injuries due to falls. She says the key is prevention. About one in four Older adults will fall every year, and about 20% of those who do fall will experience a hip fracture, a broken bone, a head injury, and many never recover from those injuries. Particularly, hip fractures are, are very dangerous because they're, you know, they're more common um, among those over the age of 75. Um, 95% of all hip fractures are, are caused by a fall. And oftentimes, older adults will have other chronic conditions, um, you know, problems like diabetes, heart disease, and those conditions get worse as a result of the fall. And some people just never recover. Because they're not mobile? Well, falls, there are many reasons why falls happen among older people. Um, One is definitely mobility issues, particularly people who have arthritis or chronic pain. They're not, you know, getting around as much and, you know, if they're not moving as much, that means that they, you know, they're losing muscle strength, they're losing balance, you know, their their flexibility, their their gait, you know, how they walk is off, and that puts them at great risk for falls. Um, also, many older adults take lots of medications. And people who take more than three medications are at a very high risk for falls, often because of the side effects like dizziness, drowsiness, blurry vision that can happen um, with common medications that are prescribed to older adults. That's why we really recommend older people get a medication review at least once a year, if not more often. How do you define Um, older people? At what age do people need to be concerned about well, um, that's a great question. Um, I'm referring to older adults as those over the age of 65. But you know what? It's really important to start preparing in our 40s, in our 50s, to help prevent falls from happening later in life. So, taking you know, being physically active throughout our our 40s and 50s is really important, so that we are strong, so that we do have good balance as we reach our older years. A wonderful program that's offered in Mississippi called Matter of Balance, and um, people in Mississippi can find out about this program through their local senior centers, and it's um, an eight-week program that addresses fear of falling that includes exercises to improve balance and improve muscle strength, and it also um, helps people who, um, you know, have that fear of falling and, and may be restricting themselves in their activities. So it's a really excellent program that we recommend here at NCOA for, for older adults, and Mississippi is offering it through the Department of Health. Kathleen, do you have any data on Mississippi? About 31% of older adults in Mississippi will fall every year. Um, and again, about 20% of those will um, experience um, an injury, such as those things I mentioned, hip fractures, broken bones. How does you know. that compare to other states? Um, it's slightly higher than the national average. Um, and I think that's probably related to the high rates of diabetes, heart disease, and arthritis among older people in Mississippi. Um, that's increasing their, their risk for falls. 
you know, we also need to talk about the home environment, too, when we discuss reducing risk and making our homes as safe as possible is really important. You know, reducing things like clutter in our homes, improving lighting, adding grab bars in our bathroom around the toilet and the tub are, are critically important. Um, getting rid of those throw rugs or um, moving power cords so they don't um, pose trip hazards. Um, for some people, they may need to make other changes to their home so that they can remain in their homes and stay as um, safe as possible and as independent as possible, and that may include maybe putting in a ramp to get into the, the front door. Um, so those are some of the, the things we think about when we when we talk about our environment and making our environment um, as safe as possible. What and advice would you have for family members who are trying to convince an older loved one to accept a little more help or to mm-hmm. avoid certain activities? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my advice is that... Um, you know, falls are not a normal part of aging. Many older adults feel that, you know, I'm just getting older, falls happen. But you know what? They are not an inevitable part of aging. There are things we can do to prevent falls. And by doing those things, we are maintaining independence of the older adult. And so my advice is to, um, you know, talk to your loved one about um, empowering them and helping them to recognize what some of their uh, risk factors may be for, uh, for for falls and helping them to address those risk factors as effectively as possible. We actually have a, a wonderful toolkit on our website. It's a conversation guide for caregivers to use um, with their family members about empowering um, their loved ones and empowering themselves as caregivers around falls risk. What's the website? Be, yeah. yeah, it's um, ncoa.org slash falls prevention. Kathleen Cameron is Senior Director for the National Council on Aging. Kathleen, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, find out what researchers are saying about hemp in Mississippi and why it might not be the crop of the future. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Members of a government task force in Mississippi have been trying to determine if there's a future for growing industrial hemp in the state. The crop could be used for fiber or sold as seeds. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is in the process of creating rules for hemp production, and it's still listed as a controlled substance in the state. But the legislature created the Mississippi Hemp Task Force to make sure the state is ready when regulations are finalized. Wes Berger is with Mississippi State University and studies crops. He talked with MPB's Desiree Frazier about his research after a recent meeting of the task force. is about growing a crop. And so our task was to help the task force, to help Mississippi Department of Agriculture, and to help the legislature and producers in the state understand both the opportunities and the risks and uncertainties associated with growing industrial hemp as a potential commercial crop in the state. What are the opportunities? The opportunities are that Once markets are well-established and supply chains are stood up, industrial hemp is a fiber and a seed crop that could fit into our row crop production systems here in the state of Mississippi and could have net revenues that under some conditions could be competitive with the other major crops we grow, like corn, cotton, soybeans, and rice. 
What are the drawbacks? Well, one of the drawbacks is uncertainty in commodity price. And so when you think about, is this a, a crop that would have net revenues that are comparable or better um, to other crops we grow, that all depends on commodity price. And the biggest uncertainty right now is what would be the commodity price for the fiber or the seed that is produced from an industrial hemp crop. And so that's one uncertainty because we don't have the markets well developed right now. Other uncertainties are the regulatory uncertainties that were talked about in the task force meeting today. USDA, under the 2018 Farm Bill, um, is allowed industrial hemp as a commercial crop and removed it from the list of controlled substances under the Controlled Substance Act. And so that's opened the door for an opportunity to grow this as a commercial crop. But they haven't yet developed the rules under which that statute will be implemented. And so we don't know today what those rules will look like that, um, that will allow producers to grow it. A second uncertainty is even after the federal rules are established, then the state has to do two things. The state would have to modify our laws that currently define industrial hemp as a controlled substance. So we'd have to remove it from that list of controlled substances. And then secondly, we would have to develop a plan that would clearly specify how we're going to permit, monitor, and regulate the growth of industrial hemp as a commodity in the state. What can hemp be used for? There are more than 25,000 products that are produced from industrial hemp. There are three main hemp products that are produced. We grow hemp for fiber, everything from upholstery to twine and rope to automobile door panels. And so there's a fiber crop. There is a seed crop. Hemp produces a seed just like wheat and other small grains, and that seed is high in protein and it's high in oils. And it can be ground in flour, it can be roasted, it can be uh, pressed into cakes. And so there are many foods around the world that are produced from hemp seed. It can also be used in animal feeds. And so the seed could be a crop. And then the third crop is the flowers of the hemp plant produce more than 100 cannabinoids. And a cannabinoid is a, um, a compound that the plant produces. A number of these cannabinoids have been shown to have potential uh, pharmaceutical benefits. And so things like CBD oil are a product that can be produced from industrial hemp that may have pharmaceutical or pharmacological value. Do you see this happening in Mississippi? From the data that's available to us, it seems that for seed and fiber production, um, the, the row crop production uh, elements of industrial hemp, that under certain circumstances it could be a profitable crop. But it's probably not any more or less profitable on average than many of our other commodities. And so um, it might be a, a part of an overall production system for a producer, but I don't see it competing with our other major commodities because the difference in the net revenues between that and, say, corn, soybeans, cotton are just not that large. 
Wes Berger is associate director of the Mississippi Agricultural and Forestry Experiment Station at Mississippi State University, and he spoke with our Desiree Frazier. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition here on Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.